1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and thank you for listening to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah Ellis, one of your hosts, and welcome to our Ask the Expert second series. The idea of these conversations is to continue exploring specific skills that we really hope will help us all as we continue to navigate our careers and a world of work that has got a whole lot squigglier in 2020. This episode focuses on experimentation, and I talk to the author of a brilliant book called Range, David Epstein. David is someone whose work I personally really admire, so I was delighted when he agreed to come on the podcast. And in our conversation together, I found him to be exceptionally considered, articulate and insightful in his perspective and ideas. So I really hope you enjoy today's conversation and find it really useful. And just before we get started, thank you to the Booper Foundation for continuing to support our Ask the Expert series. We wouldn't be able to bring these conversations to you if it wasn't for their support. They're a charity with a brilliant purpose to help people live longer, happier and healthier lives and if you want a new listen to add to your podcast list i'd really recommend a series that they've just launched called resilience brilliance and their podcast features stories of resilience from everyday people achieving extraordinary things and they're such a heartwarming listen so perhaps add that to your list if you get a moment this week so let's get started with my conversation with david and i'll be back at the end to let you know who's coming up next <laughs> So David, thank you so much for joining us on the Squiggly Careers podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And I'd like to jump right in and start by discussing success. When we think about success in lots of walks of life, perhaps historically, we really associate success with specialism. And lots of people will be familiar with the now pretty famous 10,000 hour rule of, you know, to be brilliant, perhaps we need to spend 10,000 hours doing something. But I'd just like to begin by perhaps getting your perspective on what do you see as the relationship now between success and specialism?
0: I think there is a lot of professional currency to being able to say that you're a specialist. It's very impressive. And it's also I was training to be a scientist in my first life before I became a writer. And it was a very comfortable identity. You know, there were obviously difficult things about it, but it was very easy to tell someone exactly what I was doing and to calibrate the depth I would tell them based on who they are. And as a writer, it is quite difficult sometimes to tell people what I'm doing at any given moment or what I do (laughs) in general. And that can feel very unsettling. And since I change what I'm doing a lot, I'm constantly going through these periods of feeling unsettled, even if it's the right thing for me. And so I think... Partly because when you're specialised, it's so easy to sound both authoritative and to have this very sort of well-curated identity that it's just easy for people to process as something, you know, that has currency and that has value. And, And that's not to say that it doesn't. I think it's sort of the quick path to legitimacy.
1: The next thing that I really want to delve into, and I've got really into this, this is probably the thing that really struck me about range, was this idea of experimentation versus expertise. And I'd love you to just expand on that a little bit for us in terms of why you feel experimentation is so important for us all to kind of think about in terms of our adaptability and the work that we do. And perhaps, and this will sound like a random question, but I hope not to you, maybe the difference between hedgehogs and foxes.
0: Okay, so let's start with <laughs> experimentation. I think if I had to sort of sum up range with a subtitle that would not have been very good for marketing, it, it, it would be <laughs> something like sometimes head starts can actually undermine your long-term development. If you look at the body of research, there's sort of two main avenues by which experimentation helps people improve. The first is using what economists call match quality. So match quality is a term economists use to describe the degree of fit between an individual's abilities and their interests and the work that they do, which turns out to be extremely important for their sense of fulfillment, their productivity. In fact, how much grit they display has a lot to do with how good their match quality is. So that's one, is just getting yourself in a place where you fit well. The other is providing this broad toolbox that makes people adaptable, basically. When we were in a more sort of industrialized economy, our school systems come out of, so called Taylorism, the science of management efficiency, which was, worked really well when we were in economies where you had a discrete period of training, followed by a discrete period of working for your whole life. That has gone totally out the window. Now, like everybody is having to reinvent themselves over and over and over and having to pivot from things that worked yesterday to new solutions. And it turns out that when you specialize really narrowly, there's actually something called an Einstellung effect, where you actually get stuck in certain types of, of solutions, even when there are better ones available. And so having this broad background, you can specialize eventually, but having this broad background gives you this much wider toolbox to apply and forces you to create conceptual models so that you can transfer knowledge. Transfer is the term psychologists use to mean taking your knowledge and skills and applying it to new problems, which is what a lot of us have to do constantly in our work now. The classic saying goes, breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. The wider the problems you've faced in training, the better you'll be set up to you know, be able to transfer that knowledge to new problems. And, and by the way, I just added an afterword to the paperback edition of the book that's coming out like right now.
1: Oh, interesting. And it
0: includes research from a dozen countries that matched people for their parents' years of education, their own years of education, their national test scores in a dozen countries. The difference was some got career-focused training early and others got broader training first. And the pattern was those with career-focused training were more likely to be hired right away. They jump out to an income lead, but they end up so much less adaptable in a changing work world, that they spend so much less time in the workforce over their entire life, they win in the short term and lose in the long run. And if there's a shock to their industry, they're especially in trouble, where they end up out of work for a long time or possibly forever. And in that study, the faster changing an economy was of a given country, the greater the advantage for the people with the broader education first.
1: And we teased people with this idea of hedgehogs and foxes. So I feel like we should return to it. Uh, So perhaps explain a little bit more about why they're useful kind of analogies or metaphors for us to think about.
0: So this comes from the most famous research in the world on predictions, on forecasts about geopolitical and economic and technological trends. And it was a 20-year study that looked at experts and people making predictions, essentially. And what turned out was that the worst forecasters were the most specialized experts. So people who'd spent their entire careers studying one or two problems and came to see the whole world through sort of one lens or mental model did really, really poorly. And many of them got worse as they accumulated credentials. That said, there was an inverse relationship between fame and accuracy. So like the people you see on television giving uh, <laughs> you
1: know,
0: predictions are scientifically proven to be the worst forecasters in the world. And the scientist who led this work sort of made two some broad classifications for the best and worst forecasters. And he called them hedgehogs and foxes. And it's taken from this parable where the hedgehog knows one thing very deeply, like burrows down into one thing. And the fox knows many small things. Nothing is deeply, but can put lots of different things together. And the foxes turned out to be the best forecasters. The hedgehogs who knew the one deep thing did really, really poorly and didn't learn, which was interesting. Whenever they were wrong, they would say, well, I would have had it if only one thing had gone differently, or I had it right, but I just had the timeline wrong, which of course means you were wrong. Um, And the, (laughs) the foxes often didn't have... Sometimes they had an area of scholarly expertise, but sometimes they didn't. But even if they did they would go around... By the way, this didn't mean specialists were not useful. In fact, the foxes needed specialists. They would go to them for facts, not opinions, and yeah. synthesize these facts from all these different areas. As the researcher, Phil Tetlock, who led the work said, he described them as having dragonfly eyes. So we're like mixing metaphors here, foxes <laughs> with dragonfly <laughs> <Anonymous>. eyes. Animals. Yeah, because <laughs> dragonflies' eyes are made of thousands of different lenses. Each one takes a different picture, and then they're synthesized in the dragonfly's brain. And he likened that to wow. what these people do. They they view their ideas as just hyper. Hypotheses and they go around collecting all these different perspectives and they turned out to be the best forecasters. In fact, they did so well that the U.S. government started a prediction contest and put them, these just people drawn from the general public who are these avid, curious generalists and put them against, you know, our in- intelligence agents in, like the CIA who have access to classified data on the things that they're predicting. And these generalists destroyed them, destroyed them. <laughs> Wasn't even close. That's
1: incredible. Yeah.
0: Kind of scary also, but.
1: Yeah. And just before we finish, I did want to talk a little bit about learning. So we see that with all the organizations we work with, we're all needing to get much more used to unlearning, relearning, having a beginner's mindset because of this adaptability and the experimentation that we've talked about. And I really like the fact you talk about the importance of slow and hard learning. And then this idea of spacing. So I'd just love you to expand a bit on both of those things.
0: Yeah, this falls into the category of what cognitive psychologists call desirable difficulties. Practices that make learning more frustrating and slower at first. But both helps you retain knowledge better and helps you form that knowledge in a way where it's more flexible because it forces you to have to build conceptual models instead of just learning how to execute procedures, so to speak. And so spacing is as simple as it sounds. Like when you're learning something, you should do other stuff, and then come back to it later. Like I do this, I don't have any special memory, but I can memorize hour-long presentation. Every time I give an hour-long presentation, people come and ask me how I memorized it. It's like the first question, right? They think (laughs) I have a photographic memory. It's not true. I just, when I get the assignment, I start, I go through it, and then I wait a while until I've forgotten it and then come back and do it again. And that's how you move things to long-term memory. And so there's sort of two desirable difficulties you can combine in, in one with a strategy called interleaving. To give you an example of what that is, because interleaving encompasses spacing. Where, you, So,
1: okay.
0: for example, there was a study that came out too late to get into my book of sixth grade math learning classrooms in the U.S. And they were randomized to two different types of math learning. Some got what's called blocked practice, which is you get like problem type A, 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 B, 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 B and so on. Students do well. Progress is fast. They're happy. They rate their learning highly. They rate their teacher highly. Other classrooms got what's called interleaved practice where it's like all the problem types are thrown in a hat and drawn out at random, you know, A, D, right. B. Students are frustrated, progress is slow. They rate their teacher poorly. They rate their own learning poorly. But instead of learning how to execute procedures, they're learning how to match a strategy to a type of problem. So the problems are mixed up and like problems are spaced by virtue of that. And when the test came around where everyone had to apply the knowledge to new problems, the interleaved group blew the block practice group away. The effect size is on the order of moving a kid from the 50th percentile to the 80th percentile, right? And so these difficulties of mixing things up when you're learning them and spacing them out, which feels like it slows things down and does at first, and is actually really a desirable thing to do. So I I would suggest anytime somebody has to memorize something, when you get the assignment, start and just go at it right away and then leave it aside for a while, and you can come back to it later, and that's it will actually help you encode the long-term memories.
1: One of the things that we hear a lot from people who are perhaps making career change – particularly at the moment, perhaps change is happening to them. So they're having to make career change. And we've talked about one of the things that generalism and range really helps us to do is take the skills that we've developed in one type of work and transfer them to another. One of the things that we hear a lot of feedback on is employers often don't want that. They want people who perhaps look and feel the same, who've done something similar before and perhaps don't value the kind of range the squiggliness the zigzagness that we've described today they don't kind of see the how it can be useful we hear people getting kind of quite frustrated about that now that's certainly not all employers and there's lots of very kind of progressive people who I think are starting to appreciate kind of the value of specialists and generalists because I think again to your point you're not going to go one is good one is bad it's sort of who is right for the right kind of role. And I just wondered, you know, since the book came out, and with all the different people that you've talked to, do you think kind of generalism and people with range are starting to be more valued? Can you see a bit more of a shift in that?
0: I do. And I don't think because of my book, I think, <laughs> I, I think more of my book was writing about something that was happening. Um, but I do, I think it's slow, because social change of that nature yeah. is, is always slow. But I do think that's the case. And it's interesting that We tell people to be specialists, right? And again, even if we look at this LinkedIn research at a half million members, it's the people who go up to the highest level who have done all these different things. So once they get there, we're like, oh, it's great that they're so broad, but nobody tells them, oh, hey, why don't you do a bunch of different job functions, you know, early on right? And so we force them to sort of do it on their own. I think there is some increasing value on this because people are realizing that adaptability is so important and that fewer people are going to do the same thing over and over and over for a long time. They're going to have to be adaptable. One of the sort of professions that's kind of gravitated to me as chief information officers, because they used to be people who would get people a new laptop for work and keep the servers running. And now they're being asked to be part of HR and business strategy and all these, you know, come out of the silo, don't just be in the server room. And so I think people are being asked to connect to like the strategy of their organization in a way where they can't be siloed to the same degree anymore. And so I think there is increasing value. That said, I think one of the reasons that organizations sort of default to someone who looks exactly like the square peg for the square hole is because it's easy. We generalists have a harder marketing challenge in some ways, but let me give you sort of an experience that I think led to sort of a tip of how to deal with it, which is I'm on the selection committee for this foundation in the U.S. that gives military veterans scholarships for career changes, basically. And it's incredibly competitive. And a typical right. applicant might be someone who like took a job after high school or university and they didn't like it, so they joined the military and they end up in some foreign country doing medical aid or who knows what. And they learn something there about diplomacy or bureaucratic dysfunction or whatever. And they come back with a new perspective and they want to change directions. When I get those people, they're sheepish about having changed directions. So when you see their resume, mm-hmm. it's like, even me, I'm like, oh, they look kind of scattered, you know. Then you learn about them and the people who work with them and you realize what they've been doing is they've been pivoting in response to their lived experience, which is exactly what you would want. You shouldn't want them to learn something and then continue to forge straight ahead anyway. (laughs) But sometimes we have to tell them to accentuate that, right? We have to drag it out of them a little bit. And these are the people who usually win. And so I think as generalists, I think we should look at our our resume as a chance to build a narrative of what did I learn here and why did I move to this other thing to make it sort of easier for the person looking at it instead of just a list of things make it a, a narrative journey really
1: we always ask all of our guests just to share their one piece of career advice with our listeners perhaps it's advice that you've been given that's really stuck with you or perhaps it's just advice or kind of some words of wisdom from the work that you've done that you would just like to finish our conversation with today
0: Herminia Ibarra's work had a tremendous impact on me, and her we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, is, because I don't know, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. I knew exactly what I was going to do when I was 16, and now I kind of don't. That's a reminder that you actually have to set up a way to experiment with something in order to learn if it's the right path to go. Whether that's expanding your network so you can get knowledge about some other opportunity, or a class or finding some way to dabble in something. Setting up those experiments, I think, is incredibly important because the idea of just introspecting and then making a leap is not the way these transitions really happen.
1: So I hope you enjoyed that episode and found my conversation with David useful in the work that you do. And next week, you'll have the chance to hear my conversation with Priya Parker. Priya is incredible and does a really wide variety of work all about facilitating really positive conversations and she has a background in conflict resolution which even saying those words scares me as somebody who likes to avoid conflict at all costs and she has done lots of work and research into gatherings and how we build connection and it's really this point around connection and how we've been able to do that remotely what that looks like that we're going to be exploring together so a really relevant topic for us all to discuss and think about right now. And in the meantime, as always, if you have five minutes to rate, review and subscribe, we really appreciate it. It makes a really big difference to us and the work that we can do. And that's everything for this week. Thank you so much again for listening and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now.